You're listening to Dramas Over Flowers with Saya, Anissa, and Boroma. Hi, I'm Saya. I'm Anissa. And I'm Boroma. And this is our sixth anniversary mailbag episode. Dun 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 dun. Six years. Oh my god. I think we've been doing this too long. Let's go home. We're always having to talk Saya back from the edge <laughs> in terms of quitting. No, Saya. We have not yet. We have to do extremes. Saya's like, let's stop right now. And I'm like, let's do another decade. So the rest of our lives until we die. Oh, yeah, God. That sounds good. <laughs> so we're going to ask each other some questions. And then y'all have asked us some really good questions. Um, and and or sent some some emails for us to share. But before that, we just wanted to appreciate our patrons for helping us get this far. And we just wanted to talk mm. a little bit more in detail about what it means to us, because I mean, I know we always say, you know, thank you for for let, helping us to keep going for so long. We really appreciate you. But we just thought it would be a good opportunity to to talk a little bit more in depth about like what that means to us. Um, so we have. I, I hope we have thanked you uh, properly and you have felt our sincerity. Um, all of you, not just our patrons, all of our listeners who have mm-hmm. listened to us for so long and the new ones who are joining us now. But the patrons have literally kept us going, um, even during times when all three of us were going through different stuff in our life. And we were like, listen, this is getting really hard. I'm, I We don't have time to record. All three of us aren't, like, we are in three wildly different time zones. Mm-hmm. It's just also, we work on different days of the week. Um, some of us work more on weekends. Some of us have extremely busy weekdays. And yeah, all of that together with family stuff, health stuff, my pet stuff, a lot of <laughs> stuff that keeps happening. Um We've, we've had so many crisis points where we are like, I, we don't think we can do one more episode. What's the point? <laughs> and all of that. <laughs> and then we see how our patrons have had our back. There have been times when we haven't been able to publish episodes for weeks, but you guys have still been with us. We never want to take you for granted, but... Even more than that, the fact that you trust us to come back with episodes you would enjoy and then you send us, you know, emails and comments and DMs and tell us um, how much those episodes meant to you sometimes during um, deeply emotional times in your life. We had this um, yak tea a few years ago during the pandemic, which it's it's a it's a live stream, I think, like a three hour live stream that we did. It, it's one of like the more memorable things we did uh, through Dramas mm-hmm. Over Flowers. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the first times I realized that um, the podcast isn't just a space for like, you know, critiquing uh, media that we are consuming together and just spending time with friends, but also that it's it's um, an emotional safe space, not just for us, but for many of our listeners. So all of that stuff uh, becomes really intensely visible to us. Um, because Patreon. <laughs> and and I know um, that, of course, uh, this might just sound like a long-winded plug, but that's not what we uh, mean it as. We, we have always felt like we have not uh, been able to do enough for you guys, um, the ones who are supporting us on Patreon, because you seem to support us so unconditionally. 
But it's also one of the things that motivates us. It, it, it stays in the back of our heads and reminds us that people trust us, that, you know, you support us, basically. Um, and I know it, it's maybe like a crude way of, of seeing that support, but it's visible and it's real. And we fall back on it um, as a motivator. So, anywho, uh, as always, thank you so, so very much for being part of Patreon, being part of our listenership and connecting with us in the ways that you do yeah and and also like if you are not able to support us on patreon or if you were at one point supporting us on there and then you're not able not able to anymore like we totally understand your listenership is also very important to us like what in whatever way you can support us if you're not able to support us monetarily like i know some people like share the podcast with their friends like all of that means so much to us. It's really exciting to us every time we get an email or a voice memo because, I mean, we talk to you guys all the time, but we really appreciate it when you talk back to us um, in whatever form. So thank you for, for that and for like adding so much valuable to the conversation. A lot of times you'll send us emails and we'll be like, oh, this is a really good idea for an episode we should talk about this or like you'll you know send us interviews or or tell us about dramas that maybe weren't on our radar so all of that just makes the show better i also think it's very worth saying that patreon itself and the patrons create an even safer space for us to go and talk about things that mm. we mm. might not necessarily want to put into the main feed wait did I say that wrong there are things that we might have complicated thoughts about and we aren't ready to put it into the world in an unrefined unthought out way mm. whereas for example with the loniacs that we've been dropping on on patreon recently they allow us to be a little bit more experimental but also in a way that doesn't feel uh that you don't feel uncertain about and so I also really appreciate the safety that patrons provide emotionally. Like your hmm. monetary help is amazing and it does a lot to keep us going in a material way. But the fact that you have chosen to support us because you are interested in the conversations that we can have, not just amongst ourselves, but also with you. And that has been such uh, an enjoyable and edifying sorry to use such a dry word but like the conversations that we've been able to have with you on um, Patreon they are really interesting and fascinating and it because it's a closed space it makes it easier to share things that you wouldn't necessarily be comfortable putting just out into the void mm. which you know which is like 100% public and available to everybody yeah, exactly. and you don't know who they are <laughs> exactly. whereas with patreon <laughs> we we kind of know you guys and we have you know we know who's who's listening <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. um, yeah. and it's it does allow us to be a bit more personal and a bit more vulnerable sometimes um, and also sometimes to like talk about non-k-drama things which sometimes Weird. I just yeah, I just want to yeah, talk about Yeah, I mean, like... my last Lonyak was about coffee habits and I don't think that's particularly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but I just decided to put it in. Yeah, or like, you know, <laughs> things not? we've talked about in the past, like I think I had one that was about um 
Harry and Meghan's documentary and just my complicated that was feelings a really good about one. that. That was a that really, was a really good, good one. one. I agree. Yeah. I agree. And it, it's it, sometimes we just have like uh, thoughts even about dramas that, are, as uh, Saya said, are unrefined. The way you're analyzing something right now, it just it doesn't feel quite right. And it's not at a point where you want to speak it out into the world with confidence. Mm, exactly. To a certain degree. And put your name on it. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I say a lot of things on this podcast that I'm not saying with utter confidence, but I have confidence in these two. Uh, <laughs> and I know they'll call me out if I say something completely nonsensical. Um, but there are thoughts that are even more convoluted, something that is just intensely mine. And as silly as it sounds, like last year with Alchemy of Souls part two, I had some really complicated thoughts and I wasn't sure because the conversation was so confusing out in the world. I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk about it, you know, on the podcast. So I didn't. There is like a whole episode <laughs> recorded <laughs> on it that I still haven't published. <laughs> but it, on Patreon, I, I did. I, I uh, put that out there. And it's it is hella unrefined, but it's honest. And I um, I stand by most of it. I don't think it was quite as bad as I thought it was at that point. My point is, even when we are not in the headspace to say something out loud, on the streets, <laughs> um, <laughs> we, we can do that in the safe space that is um, Patreon. So again, all of that to say, we're grateful that you help make that space exist. Because mm. honestly, if it's just if it was just the three of us on Patreon, there was no one else, it wouldn't quite have the same effect. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. <laughs> now, I want to ask you guys what does it mean to you that we've been doing this for six years i'm not starting again okay i can start i can ask myself and answer the same question yeah i can i can this is actually not my question i just said it um it was Borama's idea which is a great idea so Borama asked what has it meant for us to have been doing this for six years i think I mean, I've talked about this in the past, so I'm not going to belabor the point. But, you know, like if I hadn't started this podcast with you two, I wouldn't even have the career that I have now. Like I, I literally got my current job because of this podcast, because of what I learned making this and learning how to make audio and learning how to learning how to interview people, which like is something that I started doing on here and then refined with, you know, the other podcasts that Saya and I do together. So like I've learned so many things from you two in terms of like how how you analyze things and how you process things and how you think about the world and like your empathy and your like perspective, which is different from mine, but also similar in like really important ways. I feel like even though we know each other so well at this point that like I feel like your voices are in my head. Still, sometimes we will disagree <laughs> in a way that will surprise me. And I love that. Like, it's it's so intellectually satisfying to talk to you guys. Um, and at the same time, it's so fun. It's not like an academic exercise in any way. Right. So, um, yeah, for me, it's given me like two of the best friends that I've ever had in my life. Um, and it's also given me a community of people who like... I don't know. Like, I, I think just having an audience that thinks that what you have to say is important is really special. Um, and I don't take that for granted. And I don't think that that's um, something that's like 
owed to me or you know like i i think i think we are very grateful for that like i don't i don't think we we'd ever think that like we have a right to that so you know we are very conscious of the privilege of having this audience um and we always think very carefully about like how we want to talk about things what we want to talk about what we should cover um and we're not always able to cover everything that we want to cover because of you know what Borma mentioned about our very busy <laughs> lives and all the things that we're juggling um, but we try to be thoughtful about it um, because we take your time seriously, um, even though it doesn't seem like it when we have three hour episodes. But we do. <laughs> you know? I feel like I'm rambling, but I just wanted to say that it's it's been really special and it's changed my life irrevocably in a good way. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> OK, so, what has it meant to you to be doing this for okay. six years? Borma. Uh it's 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 meant to me it's it's given me friends it it's given me a space to improve the way i think and consume um because i consume a lot of media all of us do but from very early on um fiction has been not just an escape but it's been a way i have built up my personality, my thinking, the way I view the world, the way I, what I see of the world, my exposure, and it's been very deliberate. Like my father was like, uh, at a very young age, my dad was like, read. <laughs> if you like nothing else about the world, you, you must read. Because <laughs> that you'll find something you love in it. And he was right. Um, so when you grow up in that style, there are um, genres that you're pulled to, um, but you don't know why you're pulled to it. There are things that you take from different kind of fiction, but you don't know why it is that those were the things that you took from it. And it's been nice in the last six years or so. I always had a bent for some, <laughs> some analysis, um, but to own that and to do it deliberately, consciously, I think has helped um, in exercising my analytical muscles, the, the analytical muscles in my brain. I also, I think I understand myself better when I understand the media I consume better. Um, so all of that. Uh, and, and the medium of podcast, just like Anissa, um, I started um, al almost simultaneously as, as we started this podcast, I pivoted in my career. I went from writing to um, podcast editing, producing uh, for clients. It was drastic. I didn't know what I was doing. So anything I learned in Dramas Over Flowers was something that I was also implementing <laughs> on other people's podcasts who bizarrely trusted me uh, with their work. And I just, it's been lovely to have that overlap, like where if I learn something in my client's podcast, I can come and do a bit of experimenting on this one, but also to have people who I collaborate with want to learn alongside me because often you're trapped in collaborations where you're the only one with the real deep interest and your co-hosts or your, your partners aren't quite that into it. <laughs> and I, I think all of us would be really lucky, but I feel really especially lucky that I had friends who were like, if I got really excited about something I learned and I came to them and were like, look at this thing that I learned and that we can do and this is what it means. I knew that their response was never going to just be like, ah, 
one more thing. <laughs> Why <laughs> go away? <laughs> it's or 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 worse still that a uh, uh, nothing. So I am rambling now, but yes, it's me. <laughs> mental art is what I'm trying to get to. <laughs> I just wanted to be famous on the internet. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a failed venture I'm going now <laughs> no I'm joking no <laughs> I, do feel, I do feel like every six months I like threaten to leave and then cause a crisis but um, I'm, I am joking <laughs> um, I would not do that to you guys because you're very important to me which is kind of I guess the sum of everybody's answer right <laughs> um, I think fundamentally Dramas Over Flowers is the podcast I wanted to hear. It's the one that I wanted to listen to that wasn't here, um, you know, six six years ago when we started it, which is so long ago. Why is it so long ago? And because we couldn't find the discourse that we wanted anywhere, we kind of just sat down and realized that we have to do it ourselves if we wanted it. And so here we are. And apparently we haven't run out of things to talk about. <laughs> and K-Drama Land hasn't run out of K-Dramas. Um, the fact that you guys have such specific areas of knowledge and expertise is really um, very enriching, especially for me as someone who doesn't have any media background. I don't have any particular um knowledge in you know history or politics or anything like that beyond like high school um so I always find it fascinating to take in whatever um different perspectives that you guys bring to our discussions that I like I have no capacity to come up with these myself I'm literally just a sponge soaking up the knowledge and I know this is incredibly nerdy but we're all you know nerds here yes um, we are unabashed nerds so you understand what I mean when I say how uh, thrilling it is actually to learn things that's very nerdy it's okay we're all nerds here (laughs) (laughs) it's so exciting to learn for example like when we started this podcast I knew nothing about production like maybe just the very basic simple things I couldn't even tell you what like directing was Um, I'm not sure I can now, to be honest, but like the way that I have viewed the things that we talk about has changed, not because like I've had any fundamental shift in the way that I think, but because I've been able to gain like more uh, nuance, more knowledge, more information, which allows me to look at something with more depth than I would have been capable of six years ago. And um, that's, it makes you feel like you you personally have grown um if through the lowbrow medium of entertainment I don't know that's like an idea that people have right oh you talk about stories what what kind of like level is that that's not even a level right but it is like you can get so much out of a good story and you can also get a lot out of a bad story if you can talk about it in a good way and that's been pretty exciting as well. Um, and this goes back, like, my, and my last point goes back sort of even before we had this podcast, because, you know, I, I realized, like, Borma and I met 10 years ago. Like, 
How did that even happen? Okay, I'm just going to go in the corner with my little jealousy right now. <laughs> you guys met, met like, in person. You, you don't get to Seven years ago, right? <laughs> and it's just like, this is like, it's mad. Yeah. Who said you can't make friends as adults? We did. <laughs> But you know how, like, uh, I, was, I saw this meme going around recently about people talking about how there's a generation of people who are coming into a time um, where they've had internet friends for, like, 20 years. Hmm. I have crossed that line this year. <laughs> I've, like, you know, one of my oldest internet friends, who I've never met, it's been over 20 years. Wow. And it's just insane. And yet, you're like... You've known them since their teens, and now you're all old, and so much has changed. <laughs> it's just like, it's a different world. And like, I feel like even in six years, it's like the world has changed very much. Oh, in, yeah. In that time. Yeah. I mean, like we guys, had a whole pandemic. We went so. through the pandemic together. I was, <laughs> yeah. I think there was a recent, oh, it was that episode where we talked about Dr. Cha and other, um, like Ajima gets her groove back dramas. And so mm. when I was doing the summary and all of that, and like, you know, we put links to stuff that you might find interesting in the description. Um, and I was like, oh, we should link back to the 18 again episode. We talked about 18 again. I went back to like the 18 ad- again episode. It was like 2020. And we were talking about like, how the lockdown situation was in each of our countries. And I was like, nobody wants to go back and listen to this. I'm not liking this. It was so, it was so weird to just go back. Cause I haven't gone back and listened to anything from 2020. Mm. We went through a lot of stuff together. Like we never, you know, three years in, I think was when the pandemic happened and we had never even like been on video chat with each other. Like we started doing zoom (laughs) when everyone else did. And now I'm like, can't imagine recording with you guys without being able to see your faces yeah so yeah i really liked your point actually saya about how i had actually see this is like we've been doing this for six years so i had even forgotten but like yeah when we started it was because nobody else was talking about Mm -hmm. things the way we wanted to talk about them i mean we were one of the only drama podcasts back then now there are so many i was thinking about this like in terms of like generations and like I I guess we'd be like a second generation podcast right because we definitely we were the we were the ones who listened to the first wave first generation and And, then we downloaded each episode in in like files and listened to them I still have them all I still have I do too Uh, and this is when you had to go and look for podcasts so you RSS real what luxury isn't it Uh, and then, but then the first gen podcast wound down, and then there was like a, a period of vacuum where there just wasn't anything. And then, like you know, we popped up with our stuff. Um, and I think we've also witnessed the birth of like this third generation K drama podcast wave as well, which has been pretty cool. Yeah. So that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Especially, and uh, just to give a shout out to the other, like the third gen. Um, k-drama podcasts out there is many of them have like reached out to us and like talked to us and they've listened to us and they've sent us notes and that's been really nice um yeah like we really appreciate you guys it's it's great to be able to converse across podcasts and i love that there's no room for snobbiness in this because like you know we're just all here doing the same thing and it doesn't matter when you arrive in k-drama there's always so much to talk about and there's always a different angle 
And I think that's also one of the things I appreciate is that I think our angle has remained quite, like, very us. Um, <laughs> we are maybe diluting it a tiny bit these days with the BTS talk, uh, but, like, we won't, we won't commit to that. Like, we will not become a K-pop podcast, I promise you. <laughs> but it's, it's been nice. It's just been really nice. To, to see a lot of activity in the fandom because like you know fandom is the expression of how much interest and commitment you have to something right and we have a lot of nerd energy going on so mm. long may that live yes shall we get so to listener emails and questions <laughs> So this is not in specifically in response to our call out for the anniversary mailbag, but this was a comment that we received um, on a recent loan yak on Patreon where um, Rachel suggested a really good topic for us to discuss. So we thought this would be a good opportunity for us to discuss it. So Rachel said, would love to hear a long yak about this shift now that prestige is being associated with dramas by certain people. I'm finding it so frustrating. Not the prestige thing. They should be associated with prestige. It just feels like they're being hijacked now that the hard work has been done. Not only does it feel like we're getting a lack of certain stories, there also seems to be this huge uptick in dramas that have one female character. One. Sad face. All I've got is hard agree. <laughs> yeah. I think what um, had prompted that particular comment, like what the conversation that was going on around that time was... Um, Squid Game season two had just uh, like the teasers were being released, like the pictures of who had been cast. Im Shiwan, isn't it? Who? But um, not a single poster of a single female actress. So they're like, oh, did you just decide to replace all the female actresses? With yeah, actresses? or like how What's they all on? got fridged in season one. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Was it every female character? Pretty much. So, uh, and then, of course, they kind of like scrambled and were like, no, no, we have women too. Here you go. All of them all together here. Um, but it's it's still like way too little, way too late. Um, but also, it, it that's actually very true. We have talked about this before, how in um, Korean movies, for instance, women have always had like a secondary role. Even when you have a powerful female character, she's the only female character with any substance in the storyline whereas everybody else is um you know they, there are ordinary men there are super villain men there are super hero men there are just like weird men funny men women can only be like horrible women or great women and that that's just two roles <laughs> there's just like <laughs> lack well, of they're, they're not even you know, quite variety. roles they're like an archetype and that's it I mean, I think that K-dramas have been a lot better about this than other types of media, but it's disappointing to see that, like, as the press, the global prestige of K-dramas grows, the interest from, you know, like, male directors and male writers who have been more in the movie space because that was a more prestigious space are now like, oh, this is a great opportunity for us. Like, let's get in on this money, which is like, okay, totally understandable, but the Korean film space is also extremely male dominated. Like there's literally this group of big name directors who have their own like uh, they call it a boim, like a 
like a gathering, gathering, like a like a scheduled meeting that they have with each other where they get together and they drink and they talk. And I remember there was this. Um, so this director, Kim Ji-woon, I think this was around the time that he was promoting his film uh, Ilang, The Wolf Brigade, which is not a good movie. Um, but he also made The Age of Shadows, which is a movie that I love. And that was actually like a big part of my thesis. So, I mean, he's he's really uh, like big name director. Um. He came to Duke when I was a student there and they did like an exhibition of a few of his films. I think we watched uh, like A Tale of Two Sisters and The Good, The Bad, The Weird. Um, his most famous movie is probably I Saw the Devil. But he did like a little Q&A afterwards. Um, and then like he actually came to our class. Um, I think it was a Asian narratives class. I'm not I can't remember exactly the name of what the class was. But we were doing like different types of stories like novels and um you know, colonial era narratives and, and stuff like that. Um, but it, but he came and talked to us. And one of the things that he said, because I actually asked him a question about like, you know, um, is it how are things for female filmmakers? And he basically just like didn't answer my question. Um, I like you just got this really strong vibe of, you know, this. It's a very male dominated kind of like I feel like broy is not even the right word because that like kind of gives you a like a very adushi kind of group of people mm -hmm. you know <laughs> like um yeah. like he, an old boys club kind of an old boys club yeah. yeah um but basically the impression i got from him talking about this gathering that he has with like you know bong juno and all these other big directors who are like internationally famous like pak chanwok and all these people like they're very close friends they collaborate with each other they support each other, but I didn't really get a sense that there's a system to support like younger filmmakers, maybe female filmmakers. Um, it seemed like a really closed world. And for a long time, K-drama was a space for a lot of those other, you know, like especially women writers to really make a name for themselves and a career for themselves um, and to explore the kind of stories that weren't being told in Korean film. Um, and it's it's kind of sad to see that like a lot of these people are coming over. Is that a cat? Yeah, that's a <laughs> tiny one. I have, oh. a, I have a foster listener uh, uh, and she is um, um, loud. <laughs> and cute. Um, so it's kind of sad to see that like now that K-drama is so trendy and prestigious around the world, um, especially like post Squid Game, it's kind of being become like... Um, a lot of people are arriving who don't really understand the way that the structure of a of a a story with this format should work. And so I think it's not only like a matter of representation, which, of course, like we care about, but I think it's also a matter of like it's like subpar storytelling because mm -hmm. these people are used to writing like a two hour movie yeah. And they're not able to sustain the momentum and, and they don't understand. And this is actually something that the, the screenwriter of um, Extraordinary Attorney Wu said in that interview that I translated where she's like, oh, she's like, oh, I'm like learning the K-drama grammar. And like, I, I don't think she learned it that well, because after mm -hmm. episode eight, I don't think that like she didn't have she had written maybe like two films before that. That was like her only screenwriting experience. And I don't think she was able to sustain, you know, like episodes one through eight were actually really good. But then the second half kind of collapsed under the weight of I don't know what she was trying or what her and the director were trying to do, but it wasn't successful. But this is in my kind opinion. of the point, right? Almost as if she 
as she said, she was learning the grammar of how to construct a drama, but she also didn't know what to do with the second half to make it like land safely. Mm. And but it but it also takes like humility to know and also to recognize that the K-drama structure is a structure. Right. You can't just go in there as a film writer and just apply the same techniques and just think of it as, oh, well, this is a long film, mm. which is kind of what you get with all of these new Netflix K-dramas, which are written by these, you know, uh, and directed by these film writers and directors. So for them, it's like making the film they want chopped into parts. Right. But K-drama has beats. It has story beats. It has arc... Um, momentum it has a certain formula which exists for a reason because um a story needs to roll like it needs to build momentum from act to act to get it from one beat of the story to the next to move from plot to uh, from one plot point to the next not in necessarily in a granular way but in an overall story arc way um and this is something that k-drama writers know because they've learned it and you know the majority of those writers are women and they haven't just learned it like oh let me just like sit down one afternoon and and just yeah. figure out how to do this but like there's a very long process of like being an apprentice mm-hmm. writer yeah you know uh learning under somebody else yeah and as a being team in the of, writer's room exactly, exactly exactly and yet there's this kind of and it, maybe it's probably like an unconscious bias i don't think mm-hmm. To be charitable to the people who are coming over for movies, like maybe they're not thinking this consciously, but I'm sure there is some level of like, oh, well, I make movies. So a drama so of course is like, I can do exactly, this. because movies yeah. are obviously the superior art form. I mean, a lot of movie people think that. How right? different can it be? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going down, <laughs> you know, like that's kind of this, a lot yeah. of, a lot of, not everyone. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of filmmakers who respect TV as a form and they they know that it's different. But there's definitely some of that, right? When you've had one um, medium been sort of like relegated to, oh, this is just for like housewives and, and people who we don't really care about as much. And this other thing, this medium is what we're going to promote internationally mm-hmm. um, in a way that is like going to give us status and prestige and the other thing is like a product that we're selling you know like that's mm. I feel like that's been and I think that's not unique to, to South Korea either like I think film was for a long time seen as the high quality product and TV yeah. was al- always this like sort of domestic filler product um, mm. and to be fair a lot of TV is kind of filler like yeah. you know these are these are like particular kinds of tv that are we've, you know very well produced and and go ahead Saya. we we've spent six years talking about the rise of streaming right mm-hmm. it's definitely changed everything yeah squid game i think is a really good example of it succeeded as a product but it didn't it failed to fit like a K-drama model. So this is uh, this is a perfect example of a film that was just chopped into pieces. Because even though when we talked about it and we said it worked, the fact that in dramas you have a regular episode length, even that's a skill to be able to write an episode to fit your, you know, 60 minutes or 45 minutes or, you know, 70 minutes, whatever it is. And then each episode is a constant length. And Squid Game, they weren't able to do that and instead of being able to uh, calibrate your story to fit that kind of runtime and those kinds of breaks, 
you just kind of wrote it and then you picked the point where it needed to break. Oh, the act ended here? Okay, this is where we'll cut it. Even if it was like, you know, 60 minutes in one episode, 30 minutes in another episode. And the cuts were in the right place, but I do think it's, uh, in terms of basic metrics, it is a failure to write according to spec. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's also impacted movies, right? Like, I mean, we we generally talk about TV, but as someone who's like really interested in movies and loves movies, like the streaming has also impacted movies in the sense that like, I mean, things have really, uh, people are tightening their belts and everyone's on strike now. So things have changed a little bit right now. But like in the last few years during this like sort of golden age of streaming that everyone was talking about, there was also this feeling of like, oh, well, if it's just going on streaming, like we can make our movie as long as we want. Maybe your movie didn't need to be three hours long, you know, maybe (laughs) or, you know, like and some of these were actually released in theaters, too. But there was like this unlimited money type of feeling that because you're getting funded by these like giant tech corporations who don't need to care about how much money they're spending. And they're just like, oh, just like make as much content as, as we can to put on our streaming service to get people to subscribe. And so you get these like really shaggy and kind of um, not edited as tightly as they probably yeah. should have movies. So it hasn't been great for film either, I think. That's interesting. Well, the thing that I find really interesting is that despite uh, women supposedly having had uh, dominance in uh, the drama industry for decades, um, women writers especially, they haven't been able to form their own um, club, so to speak, like an Mm. exclusive space where they Mm. can keep uh, people out. Because at the end of the day, the women writers were still working for male directors, male producers, and men with money in their pocket. Yeah. And so male executives though, at all of and, these yeah. channels, yeah, exactly. yeah, TV channels and production companies. Yeah. So the moment streaming entered and I know we have we have observed um, the growth of streaming. We have talked about it when we used to do what's up in drama land. We used to regularly discuss what's changing in the uh, streaming space until at one point the changes no longer were interesting. They were just like annoying <laughs> and then we stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um at this point, honestly, even though I there are quite a few things that K-Dramas made possible. For instance, I will always hold that DP was only possible because... I'm sorry, Netflix made mm. a lot of things possible. I will always hold that DP was only possible because Netflix came to Korea. It's also true that Netflix has um, shaken up the pay structures and the way um, labor is used in Korea and not necessarily in a good way. Initially, we thought that the influence of Netflix, um, this international uh, company, this American company, uh, a space where uh, writers' unions are not a strange thing. Um, Creatives have uh, rights. Um, Labor movement is supposedly respected a little more when they came to other countries. Compared to... (laughs) My country, for I instance, guess, Anissa, yeah, let's, yeah. let's keep <laughs> things relative here. But relatively, we thought, hey, at least they come from a space um, where there are certain rules that they're used to while working with contractors, right? But then they came to Korea and Korean capitalism met American capitalism and was like, <laughs> I think we are the perfect pair. Let's destroy <laughs> everything together. <laughs> and so yeah. now every, every job that should have been like a direct... Um, employee contract with Netflix when Netflix's studios produce something 
is um, instead routed through like these temporary contracts through these agencies who don't have to follow the rules that you know a, a direct permanent um, employee uh, would get the benefits of, and it's terrible, guys. It's it's, well, it's awful, it's, and it's just it's, this it's, like. It's horrible. this like further horrible evolution of like the ne neoliberalization of labor, right? Which like was already happening in South Korea because people were moving more and more towards trying to hire people on temporary contracts and not on as full-time employees. So they wouldn't have to give them all those benefits and security and all of that. The same thing has been happening in the U.S. for the last like 30 years. And things have gotten so bad in the last like year or two that actually now there is a resurgence of people trying to form labor unions, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, but you're right, Forma, like the creative industries were one of the only industries where the unions were like still really strong. And, and one of the things that Netflix has done is like completely decimate um, a livable career for a writer in Hollywood because they've changed the way that writer's room is structured. They've changed the way that people get paid. They've changed. I mean, there's some like really good coverage on like why the writers are striking. Um, I'll link one of the articles that I really like in the description because I think it's really interesting if, if anyone wants to read more in detail. I don't want to like Absolutely. go over it it's too much here. But like Netflix has been really and, and these big like tech companies because for them, they're like, oh, we're going to treat this the way that labor treats tech, which is they've been doing this kind of horrible labor practices for many years since the beginning. Right. And so like, I mean, say what you will about like big Hollywood studios and production company and like TV production companies. Um, but you could actually like somewhat, I mean, if you broke into the industry, which was kind of a, like, you just got to get lucky and most people were not, but if you did, you could make a living at it. I mean, you might not be rich. Most people don't get like super rich, but it could be a sustainable living for you. Um, and it's just not the case anymore with these like short seasons um, and the way that they've restructured pay. So I don't know. So I feel like Netflix probably also brought all of those terrible practices to Korea. And then the Korean production companies were like, oh, well, we are also looking for ways to not pay <laughs> this is great. So this is great for us. Yeah. And the I mean, less we pay, the better. Yeah. You know, but like that is. Go on, finish. No, I mean, I'm saying like, so these hap these strikes are happening here in the U.S., but like the studios and the streaming companies don't seem like they're conceding at all um, because now they're like, oh, well, now we have A.I. writing. So like we don't even need you anymore. <laughs> so who cares if you strike? Because before, at least they were like, well, you can't actually make this without us. But now there's this. And I think it's a misconception because A.I. can't write the kind of stories that people enjoy, but like convince these Ter like these really um dumb you know <laughs> these production companies never understand real logic um they they operate on their own logic and one of the things that i've heard from some entertainment journalists is that like the studios actually are more inclined to agree to some of these demands from the actors and writers um but it's these streaming companies that are really holding out and that's interesting mm -hmm. because the studios at least even if they were a little bit out of touch from the actual creative side. In the end, they were always still trying to make movies and make TV and make a creative endeavor, right? Whereas like these tech companies have always just seen this as content to fill their mm. pockets. And that's like a really different way of... And Netflix is a tech company in the end. Yeah. So anyway, sorry to... 
I feel like I just brought everyone down. I apologize. No, I mean, this that's is, this what is the here. reality of, yeah. of what, what we are facing right now. That just, that's not something we can ignore. There was this really interesting article in LA Times by uh, Max Kim um, in June, which I found fascinating. I'll link to it below. And at some point, I, I want us to talk more about uh, the content of it. But so it was basically about how the title of the article is Netflix turns to South Korean writers and crews as Hollywood strikes, but they feel exploited too. And one of the pieces that was uh, mentioned inside um, this article was how the writer-director of Squid Game, uh, Hong Dong-hyuk, um, got barely paid anything for the first season of Squid Game. To the point that he's actually jointly petitioned um, the South Korean government, along with uh, many other writers and um, artists in the industry, to change the laws. Because as the laws currently stand in South Korea, it's very difficult for um, creatives to directly negotiate with Netflix. They have to negotiate through their direct employers who are then contracted by Netflix and their employees are not motivated to change things at all. And it's like, it's really... It's really messy. I'm trying to say it in the simplest way possible, but I'll link to the article. Please give it give it a read. If you like Korean dramas, you respect the writers, I think this kind of writing really deserves your attention. Um, however, uh, this gentleman, this director, uh, Hwang Dong-hyuk, once he uh, you know, got his second season out, he did say that he got uh, compensated enough. He's happy with the compensation for season two. But guys, how many of these creatives are getting a season two? This is the director. He got international acclaim and awards and, mm -hmm. you know, perpetual fame. I just like the most incredible heights uh, of renown because he created Squid Game. Netflix got on the map for large chunks of the world because of Squid Game. South Korean industry pretty much got uh, on the map for a lot of people because of Squid Game. However... This guy doesn't get compensated adequately for, for the phenomena that he created. He wrote it. And that just seems incredible to me that this system exists. However, the way, the reason directors like this guy still work for places like Netflix is because Netflix will come back and be like, hey, but create a season two and we'll pay you a lot more money. Not for the last thing you made, but for this one. What this does is allows a few people on top to get compensated enough that they will never support real labor movement of people you know, below them, the people who don't get season twos, who don't get a second chance with a bigger paycheck, it, it, it throttles the labor movement before it can happen because the most powerful beneficiaries just don't want to, you know, um, hurt their right. own interests. However, I will, like I said, uh, uh, this director did support, it does support a change in law and he is trying to um, help people who want the law to change. So, you know, I respect that. Yeah, I think it's also really complicated, right, of by this being a global company and by K-dramas being so like recently lucrative for Netflix, where like they're kind of like, oh, well, American writers and actors are on strike. Let's just pivot to promoting our Korean content much more because like it's really popular right now anyway. This can fill our gap. We don't need you. And so it's like mm -hmm. also kind of feels gross because like now they're it's like a like a, a whole new different kind of like scabbing i mean it's you can't yeah. even call it scabbing obviously like the, the korean people are not at fault at all because like they're not going to benefit from the strike it's not like they're crossing the picket line but netflix is finding a whole new way you know like these old in the old days you know 
workers would strike and then mm. these companies would get like, you know, immigrants who would normally never get the job and hire them instead. Yeah. And like those immigrants are starving. Immigrants get the ho- and then get immigrants the get blamed. Companies. Exactly. Yeah. And so and this is like a whole nother level of that that's gone like international where they're like, OK, well, our domestic actors and writers, uh, you know, or have problems with how we're treating them. So we're just going to exploit someone else. Um, and yeah. how convenient that this new type of or this media that's like more new to our audience has become really popular. It feels not good. And also as the a labor in that too. country is already used to being exploited so much that they barely notice our kind of exploitation. Because that is the hilarious thing. Uh, 2016-ish, if you guys remember, um, which is around the time when Netflix started making its inroads into uh, K-dramas, it's uh, K-entertainment. It's also the same period where we were seeing all of these crew accidents happen. They were making major news. We were seeing a lot of coverage over how badly treated uh, the cast and crew were in these sets, Mm. what horrible working conditions they had. And it seemed as if changes were being made. Laws had started shifting a little bit. They had to like follow strict um, working hours. But then as Netflix came in, it seemed like they found insidious ways of just going around all of these things. And it's just, yeah. And to be fair, like uh, even from with Korean companies, um, there is a limit to how many hours you can work. But from what I understand, like they don't really, it's not really enforced. You know that that time limit of you know how many hours. Not only is it not hours. enforced if you are like, hey, legally, I'm I'm only supposed to work this many hours. Your entire company, including your bestie who sits right next to you, is going to be like you're lazy and you just don't exactly appreciate the opportunity you're mm-hmm. given to work for this space. Also, I I should mention we keep saying Netflix because they are like the biggest um, you know brand out there, but we do mean. Every international streaming service, your Disney, Disney. even Vicky. I mean, every one of them. Amazon Prime. um, Amazon Prime. Oh, my God. Yes. Um, So all of them, all of them are doing exactly the same thing. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Also, like uh, another thing about how even the non-streaming K-drama production uh, structure has changed is a lot of time, like maybe 10, 15 years ago, these were created. Most dramas were created in-house by like the production units of television channels. Um, And now a lot of the production has been outsourced to these production companies like Studio Dragon or Netflix or, um, you know, Korean companies and international companies. And so then they, there's a different structure to how this works. And I'm like, I I don't know enough about this. I need to do more research, but like, I'm assuming that if you were working for a public broadcaster, um, your rights would be very different than if you're working for a private company and perhaps even an international company, right? Like, so who even knows what kind of legal recourse you would then have in that situation that might be different from if you're working for, um, you know, because these public TV channels are often regulated much more strictly. True. Yeah. I just had one last thought. Uh, it's that just like Anissa brought up, uh, it's when the broadcasting companies, the production companies themselves, when they are the ones who are creating, for instance, with TV and creating uh, Little Women and Vincenzo, um, they had uh, Kim Hee Won um, direct both of them. Mm. A- and you you find that women have, despite them not having like that old sort of old girls club, like a, a version of that uh, in K-drama industry, the women who have been able to, um, you know, uh, make their way up the ladder there from the drama side of things, at least have sufficient, um, 
I don't know what you clout. What's a good word? Clout. Clout. Not not even clout, but they, they are known well enough. Their work is respected well enough that they get some chance. So you have uh, projects like um, Little Women, uh, Vincenzo. I can't think of another one, though I'm sure they exist. Uh, my point is when broadcasting companies do prestige dramas, um, women still have a chance. It's when streaming mm. does prestige dramas that women seem to have no chance at all. Like, I can't mm. think of a single uh, eight-episode Netflix, uh, you know, uh, K-series that uh, was directed by uh, a woman. And, of course... There are almost no women writers in on these uh, crews either, which is uh, which is kind of why the lack of female characters kind of comes up. But um, even Vincenzo, yeah. like if you if you look at Vincenzo versus Little Women, Vincenzo mm-hmm. basically has one important female character. I mean, it's a great drama. I love it, but it kind of does fall into that trope of like having one important female character. Everyone else who matters is like her dad and Song Junki and like the whole crew at the um, Jupuragi law office and everybody in the building, you know, like all of the really important, oh, the villains, um, they're all mostly men. Oh, there is that one female villain who was actually quite fascinating. Um, But then if you look at Little Women, there are so many amazing women characters. So maybe Mm -hmm. she had to make Vincenzo in order to be able to make Little Women. Right. Because Absolutely. anytime you have, I mean, I was, um, there's this new book coming out that kind of like covers the reign of Marvel. Um, it's by this uh, American journalist called Joanna Robinson, who's been covering Marvel for a long time. And she like, she interviewed a ton of people who have been kind of following, who've been working on these movies and, you know, like this whole like Marvel MCU thing that's been happening. And she was saying, so there's this like a person called Ike Perlmutter who basically like, bought marvel when it was a toy company that was about to be bankrupt and he and it was his idea to like create these movies in order to sell the toys and if it wasn't for him like we probably wouldn't have the mcu but at the same time like once kevin feige came in and he had this whole vision and he wanted to he wanted to make movies like captain marvel and black panther from the beginning but ike perlmutter and his like crew were like oh but like people won't it's not that we don't want to make those movies, but people won't want to watch a movie about like a black man and a woman like centered around these characters that aren't they're not considered to be profitable. But it's like this all this always this thing of like, oh, well, if it's someone that we're not used to seeing on screen, nobody wants to see them on screen. That's why we're not used to it. So it becomes this like vicious cycle of a self-fulfilling prophecy of like, well, we've never put these people on screen before. So obviously they can't carry you know, a whole movie or a whole TV show. Well, like you never tried it, <laughs> you know? And then even when they try it and it's like really successful, they're like, oh, well, like so lucky that it worked out this time, but we can't take that risk again. So you just never advance. And it's always about like, you know, the the type of person that's always dominated things, which is, so maybe, so what I'm saying is maybe the success of Vincenzo was was what was what allowed um, her to to make a drama with a yeah. lot more women that centered around women that was still very prestige and got like a huge budget, which was really nice to see. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Even with uh, The Glory, even though it was uh, hemmed by Angelo and uh, you had Kim Yun-sook as the writer who's like almost the most prominent K-drama writer in the industry, you still had her saying in her interviews that, in a, in a positive way, that her she changed her writing for Netflix. Um, under Angelo's direct, uh, direction. 
Um, and he's a drama director, by the way. But mm. once he directed this, the way he directed The Glory is not how he directed his previous uh, projects. So it's interesting that just knowing that you're directing for a different medium forces these changes on to these creatives who are hugely powerful in the industry. Nobody can make them do stuff, but it is what it is. All right. I think we can move on to the next topic, but thank you for, for bringing that up, Rachel. It was a good discussion and I hope that we covered it sufficiently and satisfyingly for you. So our next letter is from one of our patrons who wrote in response to the last Loniac that I dropped, which was about how I was feeling about BTS Jungkook's latest or first solo single, which was quite a departure from his work with the group. And also just thoughts about child actors and entertainers and how they come of age in the industry and the way that they're so, uh, and the way that they're sexualized and the forces that drive that and basically maturity and sexualization and all of this stuff. And so our respondent who wishes to remain anonymous writes, Hi. Sai's voice note on maturity inspired me to write. I don't know much about K-pop, although I have a couple of faves. I am a K-drama lover first, interested in Korean language, culture, society, history, art. I like the puzzle-like complexity of the K-drama stories, the fashion and the beautiful production of the newer ones, good acting, and yes, beautiful people. And I like that most probably I will not be ambushed with an explicit sex scene. I have respect and positive feelings for BTS as a curious onlooker, but Jungkook's new song left me underwhelmed. I listened once. I thought it was banal, unimaginative, and boring. I moved on. I expected more from the quote-unquote golden magne. Just after listening to Saya, I looked up the explicit lyrics and concluded that we would be just fine without it. BTS is a wildly successful business, so Jungkook's single must have been sanctioned by their company. Someone decided it was a good business decision to move in that direction. Still, I think it was Jungkook's free will and choice to record and publish the song. Thus, all good so far. Which brings us to my problem. Other young idols at the beginning of their careers may not be as lucky as Jungkook to express themselves. I am often left uncomfortable with how these beautiful and talented young people near in age to my children are sexualized in music videos, interviews, and BL, often more explicit than mainstream drama where the height of excitement is a pat on the head. Many of them start as children and are objectified their whole life. People commenting on their looks in person, in interviews or online, must affect their sense of self-worth, no matter how mature, cheerful or aloof they seem. They may be legally adults, but there is no clear point in time between childhood and maturity. Sex scenes or just kissing random people in front of cameras must be confusing at a young age. They may feel powerless and disposable and think that choosing an explicit drama or swallowing an unpleasant comment is the price of success. It's exploitative and damaging. But the idol system is not going anywhere soon. I enjoyed your episode on our blooming youth, and I'm happy that Park Young-shik has been done justice. I'm looking forward to your mailbag episode. Best wishes. Thank you. Thank you, Anonymous. I feel like Burma should start, because I need a drink. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So... I, I didn't have um, or, or that much expectation from the Golden Magni. 
<laughs> partly because um anytime i've had like a anytime i see um the fandom having like these unrealistically high expectations of somebody who um has not done solo projects before it's it's just setting them up to fail for no reason at all like they could be incredibly talented but you want their very first solo project to be like the most incredible thing ever that's just that's that's incredibly um it sabotages yourself and the artist that you love so much so but like i didn't think of all of this stuff while not having my expectations i just didn't <laughs> that was that was just that um i also just i'm i'm relatively new to bts um and i am less intensely um involved um <laughs> than some of my friends but um, <laughs> i i did Yeah, who, who would that be, Zaya? <laughs> oh my God, the construction next door is killing us. Oh. I thought we were pretending it wasn't happening. I yeah, let us. Uh, it's not happening. You're imagining it, listeners. Um, we're so sorry. Not a, sorry, not really at all. Well, can I make a note here then, just to, shall I? Yeah, I mean, this is res- in response to your lone yak. So, like, what do you think, Zaya? Oh, I have so many thoughts and I probably have shared every last one of them with Borma over the last month and she's now tired of the subject. <laughs> okay. I am um, not. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I have worked it out, so I'm I'm over it. Um, well, kind of. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there's so much that I could say, but I think I will leave it at that I l- pretty much agree um with everything um our writer wrote here. But also I think that I mean this is kind of a trivial detail and it's probably not like it's not significant in the grand scheme of things but technically like for a song that was you know boring and all of that it wasn't the the reason that people had expectations wasn't um because they expected some kind of um seventh wonder of the world or whatever eighth wonder I don't know um it was because based on his previous solo songs you had come to expect a certain type of like musicality so in that sense our writer is correct in um guessing that this was an executive decision and it was um as we've found out in our reading and stuff since that um bang shi hyuk the big boss uh of BTS who is no longer the CEO but s- still continues to drive these decisions it was a choice that was made at the executive level to uh, really target american charts mm. and Jungkook is the perfect vehicle for that his tastes run very sort of mainstream in that way um so the song fits into American chart music but um as i said in the in my voice note it it's very definitely you know a song that is made for the charts and not for the arts which is how i saw it described by somebody uh, by a youtuber not my own words um but very well put so yeah that's all true but the big question is that even when we can say you know this artist chose this for themselves it's there's also still just quite a an ambiguity a certain kind of discomfort that 
uh, I have with these people who have been in the industry since childhood. And, you know, I was reading the other day about, like, Jungkook entered, like, BTS um, at the age of 13. Like, he entered the dorms at the age of 13. He didn't go to school properly. He didn't uh, get to live that sort of normal young person's life where you learn things like social habits and, um, you know, how you interact with people in different situations, how to draw your own boundaries. And this is something that Anissa sent me uh, an, an excerpt of a book that she was reading, which thought really like nails it about how what is demanded from child actors or entertainers is compliance. Like that is the most important thing. And non-compliance is punished. Um, so you are programmed and like I'm not it's not an exaggeration to say you're programmed because that's what you do at that age you indoctrinate and program people to behave according to certain uh, norms and the norms of the entertainment industry are not the same as the norms of like wider society what you would experience as a non-celebrity person as a normal kid as you know someone who is living in a family structure that has like a parental figure who is most likely a parent with you know siblings and all of these things and you know like for example in BTS they all joke but it's real and they're serious that they all raised Chungguk. But children cannot raise children. Mm. They were all kids. Um, so, and, and you can see, like, you can see the remnants of that in his behavior now. Um, and I recognize that this isn't something that everyone is going to see necessarily. I am a little older, so I'm looking at this differently. To me, Chungguk is not like... Um, uh, 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 what is it a sex symbol or anything <laughs> he's like he's someone who's younger than my youngest siblings but also very close in age to them so that like you know it's it's complicated but also like we have so many accounts now because we are in an age where child stars have become adults and many of them are actively and publicly, or at least openly, working through the abuse uh, that they experienced in their childhood um, as, you know, exploited young performers. Mm. So there's a lot there. Mm. I wanted to just, I was going to bring up that book as well, um, Saya, but like... Please do talk about it properly because... No, no, I, th I think you covered the the relevant point. But the excerpt that I sent to um, Saya and Parma in our group chat was from page 69 and 70 of this book called, um, let me just, so it's called Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood by Maureen Ryan. Maureen Ryan is a, um, a longtime entertainment journalist. I think she's been doing it for like 20 years. And obviously this is about the American entertainment industry, but the excerpt that I, sh I shared with these guys was about um, Evan Rachel Wood, who was describing how, like what it's like to grow up as a child star. And she was even saying, I think she started acting when she was six, but she was saying like, my parents would never have me in something that was like less revealing than like a knee length dress because they thought that would protect her. But she said like, it didn't protect me at all. And she, she was describing how, um, Anytime she had any kind of opportunity and they were asking her to, you know, for example, take a picture in an outfit that she felt was 
that she was uncomfortable wearing or that her parents felt was inappropriate. They were like, well, then we don't need to do this photo shoot or like you don't have to be part of this opportunity. And so there's this really this pressure of, well, if you want this opportunity, you have to do whatever we ask you to do. I think she had her first mm -hmm. um, sex scene when she was 16. There was no one on set to help her or to like, you know, like so however you feel vile. about those kind of scenes. At least, I mean, there's a way to do that in a way that is considered, you know, like ethical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of times they'll have intimacy coordinators on set. They will um, there will be other people there on set to make sure the people who are doing this kind of scene feel comfortable and feel protected. Um, and there was nothing like that, you know, and, and she was a minor and still there was nothing like that. So, like, there's so many protections that should have been in place for her. And even and this is somebody who even had parents who wanted to protect her. Um, but even in that situation, she was also talking about how like there's always this pressure of like every t time you can't waste time because there's so much, you know, every minute of filming costs so much. You don't want things to be like delayed. You don't want them to be put on hold. Like you don't want to make things difficult for people. And a lot of times um, these productions are run by these very uh, sort of dictatorial type of personalities who are basically given free reign to do whatever they want because like oh like a creative genius is always going to be an a-hole like that's there's like this myth right of like you have to be a monster in order to create something amazing which is so not true um, anyway it's a really good book um, if you're interested in Hollywood or in entertainment industries in general like I know this is a K-drama podcast I'm sorry for always bringing on like Hollywood related stuff but um, it's a really good book um Mo Ryan's a really good writer um, and she's she also like describes the sort of um, behind the scenes of a lot of really famous cultural productions. Um, her chapter about Lost and what the how hellish the writer's room was on Lost and how like the extreme success of that show made it even worse because no one was mm -hmm. willing to step in and tell the, the showrunners anything, even though everyone knew it was like an abusive workplace. Um, is really fascinating and sad to read. But yeah. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend the book. Also, the director years later being utterly bewildered that the showrunner being utterly bewildered that there was any abuse. Did you feel that way? Oh, was it like both that? of them? Yeah, one of them Just... was like completely like, I don't remember any of this. None, none of it happened. The other one, Damon Lindelof was like, you know, I regret whatever bad things I might have done, you but felt, I don't personally recall felt. anything. I, I regret what you <laughs> felt. Yeah. I just love this way of apologizing. It's just, it's just the best. <laughs> the other thing that I found, uh, so so when, when Anissa shared uh, these excerpts, um, my head went straight to Korean industry. And I was thinking of uh, the child actors we have seen mm, grown up into yeah. adult roles. And I was thinking of... Um, Kim So Hyun, for instance, and um, Kim Yoo Jung, uh, Kim Yoo Jung, correct. and Kim Se Ron, and, and Kim Se Ron, yeah. absolutely, yeah, the three Kims, um, right? Because uh, weirdly, for instance, um, Kim Yoo Jung, we all know that if you've watched uh, Youth Empty, for instance, you can see how mature she is. She's a sombay, even though she's one of the youngest um, on set. Um, she's a sombay to almost almost everyone there. It's it's, yeah. and she holds that like she has that responsibility like you can see that in her actions the way she interacts with everybody around her she doesn't act like um, a, a girl in her early 20s she acts like somebody who's been in the industry for a decade and a half it's 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 incredible um but that also tells you something about how you reach that point 
like where your maturity far outstrips your age and that's not always the best thing um but then i also think about kim so hyun and we were talking about this recently like her recent drama where she is like we're still processing a recent drama cuz it's ongoing but what i got out of it was that she plays a woman in her mid 20s and kim so hyun finally is 24 years old playing a woman her age but before that she had several years where she was like between 18 to early 20 she was playing women who were in their mid to late 20s and it was it was an odd mismatch and we kept wondering why why is she why is she taking on these roles it doesn't make sense it she's not doing the best job and she of all people would know because she is an incredible actress so she is taking on characters who don't fit her right it almost seemed like even if it wasn't like a direct pressure that there were expectations of her graduating onto um, a grown woman adult romance role and that's just it like we will never know what's happening in the backgrounds right but when you read texts like this you think about the children you have seen grown up into these adult actors and yeah. you're like what what's been happening yeah and you know you see these like you see these like magazine photo shoots sometimes of of actresses who are like 14 or 15 or 16 and they've been styled so much older so provocatively it's so it's so concerning like it's just Yeah. And this is this is all not even bringing up Backstreet Rookie. Um yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we've talked about that a lot. Um a lot. You could find our our episodes on that way back when, but it's it's there. Right. Extensively covered. But thank you for that lovely note, Anonymous. <laughs> so the next letter is from Vish. He emailed us Hey all, hope you're all well and having fun matching time zones. I recently picked up Not Others. So did I by the way. Um and just wanted to say it's so well written, well acted and a good fun story. Mother and daughter duo remind me of Gilmore Girls but grown up and with an Asian twist. Also to think Park Seung-hoon can go from into the ring to the glory and now this so talented. So young has also been picking up some interesting projects which shows her range and ability. Uh, John Hagen has been great in everything she's been in. She seems to be having so much fun in this role. I completely agree. Uh, she's having a blast. A short 12 episode drama which is a great sweet spot to a tight story and no waffle or uh, crazy storylines trying to stretch episodes. Also, King the Land. Wow, such a bad show. Um <laughs> <laughs> I two thirds of us agrees. <laughs> um It's tried to hit all the clichés of a typical romance story but it just doesn't work. I feel like they could have made a better show if it was about the three friends. I I agree. I agree with that. Their stories are so interesting and could tackle interesting subject matter. There is definitely a show waiting to break out there between the three friends. Keep up the good work. Congrats on the anniversary. Thank you. Thank you. I, thanks Fish. Listen, uh, first I am watching not others too and actually because you uh, brought it up I'd been seeing clips of it and I'd been sort of thinking of picking it up and then you sent us an email and I started watching the first episode. It's definitely interesting. I have thoughts and if we do another long yak. Yeah, soon, I watched I a couple of episodes as well. I definitely yeah. see where you're drawing the Gilmore Girls Gilmore comparisons. Gilmore Girls reference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a little um I didn't realize actually when I started it that was that it was 19 plus and I was like, "Whoa." And then I was like, "Wait, wait, wait, wait. What's the rating on this?" So, um I was not expecting that. It's definitely a little more like 
R-rated than uh, than you might be expecting. So uh, maybe it's not for me. <laughs> um, so if that's yeah. not for you, then then just be warned. But um, I definitely agree that the the two leads are having a blast acting in it. Maybe we can talk about it in our next long yak. I'm I'm really happy that John Hayden took this role up because I. Listen, John Agent just keeps getting really serious roles, even though she has such great, like she has a talent for humor, which I think is underutilized. So she's definitely getting to flex that. So I'm really happy about that. We should talk about this uh, drama whenever we can. Um, also, King the Land. Um, listen, I think I think the creators really wanted to make a show where they show the plight of exploited labor but then they accidentally made a show um glorifying capitalism oh dear (laughs) hey when that happens (laughs) what a bummer (laughs) yeah but you know we got a really swoony juno listen points for that always points for swoony jinho okay i will read the next letter Dear Dramas Over Flowers, I've been listening to your podcast since 2021. Of the many podcasts I listen to regularly, yours is the one I look forward to the most. Ah, thank you. I've never reached out before, but I listen to almost every episode and I've come to value all of your perspectives and insights. I'm always eager for new episodes, but I also appreciate how you allow the rhythms of work, family, health, religious observance, and energy to shape what you choose to create and put out into the world. Here's a question that's been on my mind recently. I consume a lot of K-drama, and I love it, but the repetitive scenarios are getting ridiculous. How many dramas about crown princes do we really need? (laughs) What stories would you like to see explored that until now have been largely ignored in K-drama? Thank you so much for your good work. Mary. Okay, I feel like somebody's being called out by that. (laughs) How many dramas about crown princes do we really need? (laughs) That's never enough. (laughs) And if they have Pakyung, she can make them more. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I, I, seriously I not enough. <laughs> Pakyung should make at least uh, one of these a year. I think that that would fill up the quota mm. nicely. But on a more Thanks, serious Mary. note, yeah, thank you for such a lovely letter, Mary. We really appreciate your <laughs> devoted listenership and your like really good question. I actually do have a wish list of the kind of dramas that I'm still waiting to see K-Dramaland do. Um, and chief among that, well, my two-item list, I just really want a You've Got Mail storyline, K- mm. like, K-Drama. I, can we, when are we going to have one? Give it to me. Like, do you not understand that it's my favorite thing? <laughs> not like You've Got Mail itself, but like that storyline, you know, these two people... That correspondence romance where they don't... The daddy long legs thing? Not quite. Did you, were you a fan of daddy long legs when you were growing up? No, I hated yeah, that. I found that really weird, weird and creepy. <laughs> what? I, I I'm loved sorry. it. I definitely loved <laughs> I it. So. I love it I so just, much. Saya was more like woke than we were. <laughs> <laughs> she already knew it was creepy. We had to <laughs> process or internalize. Uh, but issues. Like you, you know that sort of that relationship um, that internet for email friends internet friends whatever i don't know how you do that anymore they don't know each other in real life but they meet in they meet in real life and they don't know that they're their secret 
Did you ever like, watch that um, thingy? You've got male esque Japanese drama that I recommended to you a while back. Did you? I did. Because you said that you this. liked okay, tell the me again. trope, and I. Um, okay. Yeah. How did I, I need how to I remember I need to this look up the name again. It was something love, but it had um, I think Takashi Kaneshiro. I will I will look this up and tell you. I I, I don't want to take time out right now, but I will look it up okay. and I will tell you and I will share it with the listeners too. Okay. I live for these stories. I mean, Healer is also a version of that story, but not exactly mm. the same. But you know, a little I bit mean. secret identity kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but like in a very. The thing with Healer is because they didn't have a mutual relationship, whereas in a Cinderella story, like a Cinderella story is the perfect version of it, except when you find out that that film was really creepy in the behind the camera stuff. Yeah. Um, which actually relates to our earlier um, thing about the sexualized children and how the director made them kiss in front of him in his trailer and she was 15 and he was like Chad Michael Murray was like I don't know 20 something yeah. oh so gross you just why did you ruin like my favorite film ah <laughs> anyway okay so while you were ranting um I remember the name <laughs> it's with love it's from 1998 so you know just be warned that it's like still in the square aspect ratio and be kind to it for being uh 25 years old <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. But it stars, uh, sorry, uh, Takenuchi Yutaka. So I totally got the actor's name wrong. But to be fair, he looks a lot like Takashi Kaneshiro. <laughs> um, and the author, the, the female lead is played by Tanaka Misato. And it's basically like, he's a composer who's like, can't write a love song since his girlfriend left him. Um and then she, he's like accidentally sends her a piece of his incomplete music via email. She's touched by his music. They start a correspondence. They fall in love, but they don't know each other. It's great. <sighs> okay, I will go. And look Lots of that yearning. Immediately after. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even. I, I watched this like ten years ago, so I don't even know like where you would find it. But um, we can go on a hunting expedition. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to when it's from that long ago. Right. So that's that. I have one more, <laughs> which is, um, so, you know, I, actually, I think Little Women has kind of begun this, although maybe it hasn't because that adaptation was very, like, different. But I've always wanted Jane Austen to be adapted into K-drama mm. because it's so perfect. Like, English, that kind of... Regency or even like earlier or later or whatever I don't know what the ages are but like women authors of that particular kind of historical era the sort of Jane Eyre style wouldn't mm. Jane Eyre make such a brilliant k-drama like I want them to branch into some adapt like because they are doing western adaptation like adaptations of western works but not of any women writers yeah and I want to see some Jane Eyre would be perfect I would argue that like every k-drama is a has been a yeah, no, I, I feel like every there's been like three or four adaptations of Pride and Prejudice a year for the last like 15 years. But in I want -drama. an explicit <laughs> I mean, adaptation. so I'm just saying like it has been feeding us with something yeah. like that. But I agree that Jane Eyre would be something totally different and very interesting. 
Yeah. Yeah. I want to see it. See, Little Women has kind of that mood that, as in the K-drama Little Women, has the mood that I would want uh, a K-drama Jaina to have. Mm. Like, wouldn't that be perfect? Someone tell them quick. Make mm. Jaina. A melodrama. <laughs> like, that's, that's my wish Like, list. not a, like, it needs to be really dark. Yeah. Not like a, like dark, a. A little mystical. Yeah. Kind, not necessarily mystical, but you know that gothic horror. Right. But right. not actually being like zombies or ghosts. Right. Things, but, but the like tone. The mood. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is one of those questions where, like, I have lots of ideas and then somebody asks me and I'm like, I got nothing. I don't know anything. I can't think of it. <laughs> You're going to think of 10 things afterwards. I will. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Sorry, Mary. But I think um, more than something that I never see, there are certain things that I would like to see more. So mm. um, more romance dramas between, like, non-traditional, quote unquote, like, lead character types you know like mm-hmm. i would love to see a full-on romantic comedy or like a romance workplace drama but like with characters who don't usually get to be in those roles you know like um for example with the lead actress of perfume who did get to be in that role but like a lot of the time it was her character but as like the skinny younger version of herself yeah. being you know getting most of the the screen time mm-hmm. or you know, you know like just actors who and I know this is probably not going to happen because there's a very sort of rigid standard in people's minds of like what makes a marketable male lead and what makes a marketable female mm-hmm. lead um and I feel like now that k-dramas have gotten so prestigious and expensive they're leaning even harder into trying to make them like conventionally beautiful in every way. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know, maybe that opportunity is not available, but I would love to see that change. Uh, You know, like people with more different kinds of body shapes Mm -hmm. and sizes and people with unconventional looks and people with like darker skin colors. We do have some male actors who get to be male leads who have a darker skin tone, but I don't think I've ever seen a female lead with a darker skin tone. You know, like you have Taekyung, you have, um, you have Kim Soo-hyun. So you have a couple. You have um, even Yoo Sung-ho is a little bit a little bit darker. Um, mm. But it's rare. I mean, in the summer, they're all a little bit darker, which is... Do you know, it's so... that Actually, that's a really good point. It's so nice to watch. If you go back to some older dramas and you can see that they... That they're just like their own color. People are allowed to be their own color, right? Right. And it's, like, and I like feel like less brown. so... As time <laughs> yeah. goes on, people are allowed to be their own color less and less. Yeah. And it's unfortunate to see that trend going it the is. wrong direction. It is. But also on the upside, um, maybe they can only tackle one thing at a time. I don't know. But like, I think we're seeing a lot of pushback on the ageism that is in K-dramas. Like um, you talked about in your previous episode, just this revival, or not a revival, but like an upsurgence of... Wait, is that a word? Like an upsurge in um, dramas that... Um, allow older women to be the leads. And I don't know if that's because these are actors who have had a long career in um, being like that stereotypical romantic lead and now they're aging into these older roles. Um, And, you know, you don't want to just toss these amazing actors away just because they're um, older now. So now you have roles and dramas created for those women, which is great to see. It also does give room to um, secondary actors and supporting actors to also inhabit these interesting roles 
while not being these classic, conventionally attractive um, women who fit into that very specific beauty standard that K-dramas um, elevate. Yeah. Borma, do you have any requests? I really loved it when Akamiyoso was brought in fantasy, but like high budget fantasy into K-dramas. That has been a space that um, Dramaland has avoided for budgetary reasons, but also because they weren't sure that the audience was there for that kind of storytelling. I really want to see more of that. But like, you know, uh, let's let's be consistent this time and have just one season. Not like Earthdale Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's that's honestly the thing that I mostly want to see. Also, more cohabitation stories, please. Um, let's do m- more marriages of convenience. <laughs> oh, you know, I, I always, always love those tropes. Yeah, you know, that's my favorite trope. I feel like I don't need to repeat that. Yeah. Also, oh, just on a serious note, um, I want to see more queer representation um, in K-media and not in that exploitative uh, BL genre. I know a lot of people love BL genre. Um, so do I. But... In mainstream, better representation, just smooth, organic representation and not like, you know, a tropey token representation. All right, I'm done. (laughs) So, Barma, you take the next. uh, Do you want to read out the next question? Okay, we got a few from uh, Instagram too. So, Meenal, who is the co-host of Crashlander.kdramas, had one for us. She asked, what is the driving factor for you three to keep the podcast going? We kind of answered this uh, at the beginning of the show, but um, I think the driving factor is us being friends. I have, um, professionally, I have witnessed many podcasts being uh, co-hosted by people who come together through shared interests. But one of the reasons it doesn't work out is because the, even though they have shared interests, they're not friends. So while it's all great and nice to be professional with with each other and to sort of try and, you know, share responsibilities, you do have personal situations that come in. And in a professional setup, you're a lot less likely to be understanding of each other's situations. You want your work to be shared exactly in, you know, the right uh, divisions, as it should. Um, honestly, I'm not critiquing that setup at all. But the advantage of being, you know, uh, friends, creating something not really for profit or for anything else, but because you There's enjoy no creating profit. something together. There's no profit. Yeah, that, <laughs> In case that anybody wanted true. to know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, like to, to keep doing this is is the fact that we enjoy each other's company. We like talking to each other. Most of the stuff that I watch, I I, I come to these guys with my thoughts. I don't think I would feel as fulfilled watching this stuff and analyzing and critiquing it if I didn't have these guys to share it with. So I think the driving force is us being friends, which unfortunately is not a replicable formula. But... But, you know, for those of you who are starting things with your friends, but don't know if your idea is going to take off, take heart. You're likely to actually last much longer because you're doing it with your friends. Just don't expect to make money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, don't expect to make money. That's your uh, goal. That's you need a whole different. You need to take inspiration from somewhere else. (laughs) Don't you think it's also more risky doing something like doing 
a project that is work with oh, your oh. friends. I definitely. Yeah, I feel like we talk about this every year. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we literally talk about it every year. I think for us also, like, yes, the fact that we're friends and, you know, for me, like to add on to what you said, Borma, like every time I have a thought and I want to share it with you guys or like we plan a show and we're like talking about it and planning it, I'm like excited to have a chance to sit down and actually like get into it with you, you know, like to dig into that meal together. But at the same yeah. time, like, I think we're really fortunate and blessed that like the three of us mesh as well as we do in terms of, you know, our um, not only our styles of work, like I think there's like different parts of taking care of the podcast that each of us is good at and that some and like there's definitely parts that I'm weaker at. that I know one of you is better at. So like that has meshed pretty well for the most part we've also had to grow through the process of learning how each other's work styles work and understanding that like my commitment to this and your commitment to this might not always be the same at every moment right like we're kind of going through ebbs and flows in each of our lives and we've had to kind of you know like learn how to deal with that and work through that and um, I think it's made us better friends but it's definitely not like a given that you should just be like, oh, yeah, we're friends. Yeah, so this true. is going to be fine. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think all of us I, have worked really hard on. Because you you do, we, we do have situations. Um, I've seen friends work together and things and friends do take advantage of each other. Not all friends are made equal. Right. That, that <laughs> is, uh, yeah. That it's Well, point. it's also like with roommate situations, right? Sometimes you're friends with someone and you're like, oh, we're friends. We should be roommates. And you're like, oh, we shouldn't have been roommates. And other times <laughs> yeah. it's like an ideal roommate situation. Yeah. So true, it's kind true, of, true. you know, I actually think that the podcast longevity is down to us not putting the podcast first. And mm. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but that's what's allowed us to keep going. Because we all are very busy and everything that you guys said in the beginning, there's not really, especially if you consider the fact that it does not make money, there's not really any material reason to keep doing this. But what happens is because there's three of us, again, as you said, we can go with the ebb and flow of our individual rhythms. Sometimes one of us is unable to do a, like as much as we might need to for a period and then someone else picks up what the other person can't do and then like that cycles we all have cycles of when we're not able to do as much or someone else is doing a little bit more and I still feel very guilty about this I'm so sorry <laughs> but just the fact that we like truly do love each other that much that we mm -hmm. would like we're at any moment ready to say you know what if we can't do this anymore we don't have to and so mm. in that way it doesn't become like the millstone around your neck it does it, it remains something that we enjoy doing not something that is uh running us we get to choose how much energy we can put in how we ration the work that we're doing and you know and I think like the the I mean I don't think I've ever thought of this this explicitly before until you said that Saya but like knowing that I can trust both of you to have my best interests at heart over the podcast like because it's very um I think it's rare in like work situations and I know this isn't exactly a work situation but in a lot of ways it functions like work right it is, yeah. it's rare in work situations where like the other people involved 
are more worried about your health and well-being and sanity than the actual project. Like everybody's like about the project and they're worried about themselves. Usually like that's and that's normal. That's totally understandable. Mm. But I think this is like one of the unique situations I've ever been in where like the three of us care more about each other and making sure that each other are okay. The podcast is also important to all of us. Obviously, we've been doing it for six years. We love it. We really enjoy it. But like, it's not worth the cost of like one of our health, for example, you know? And so in those situations, mm. we're always like, okay, you don't need to do this right now. Like, take a break. We'll handle this, you know, for the next like month or whatever. And I think the other thing is um, the trust that our listeners have in us that like, yes, you still yeah. come back even if we don't post something for like a month. And mo and usually yeah. your question is like, are you okay? And not, how dare you not, yeah. you know, upload something. And we really appreciate that because like, yeah. we don't take your support for granted. And like, I, I mean, even the, the email that Mary sent us saying like that, um, you know, she appreciates how we allow the rhythms of work and, you know, everything else, family, health and all that, um, to shape what we make. Like, that's a really generous um interpretation and we really appreciate that yes. because like not everyone yeah. has that perspective as a as a listener or somebody who's like you know um a fan or a fan seems weird I, I don't think that we have fans mm -hmm. I, I don't know I feel weird describing fans <laughs> to myself but like people who are you know waiting for you to to deliver something that you've promised that you'll deliver so um I think like having that trust from our listeners is also really like Saya said it helps us feel like this is a joy and not a burden mm. And also we're all anti-capitalists here, so we're not really about labor exploitation. We're just, you know, and I think our <laughs> yeah, listeners yeah, yeah. who have stuck with us this long probably think along the same lines. So we are all about the, you know, taking care of the, the person, not the project. So that, yeah. yes. Taking care of the community and not the mm. project. Yes. Individualism yes, exactly. is, a, is also part of capitalism. Well, yes, that's <laughs> true. That's true. Very Thank good you point. for that correction and clarification. <laughs> Absolutely. We so laugh, true. but we are not joking. <laughs> well, absolutely not. <laughs> All right. So we have another question from uh, Instagram from Fly Rosie Fly. And they ask how shows like Dr. Romantic and other serials differ from more traditional ones. Mm. Dr. Romantic, I think it's worth pointing out, which also previously known as uh, Romantic Dr. Dr. Teacher, Dr. Kim. Teacher Kim. I've almost <laughs> forgotten the original title. <laughs> it, it didn't start off as a serial. Like it wasn't, it, it wasn't intended to be that, but it was so successful that it, and and the format lent itself very well to um, a second season. So and this is kind mm. of like a procedural um, thing, right? There are certain types of shows that are very easy to extend into a second season without it being, um, without it fundamentally changing, you know, like mm. the the story or even the drama landscape. And we have had um, like. Uh, Romantic Doctor Teacher Kim is not the first um, K-drama to get a second season and it's not the first procedural either. I mean, the one that comes to mind um, immediately for me is Special Affairs Team 10, which is from 2011. Um, and that was successful for at least two seasons, I think, if not three. Mm. And then it had a recent um, new season a few years ago. Um, so... You, 
also had uh, voice, for instance, mm-hmm. or yeah. even um, yeah. sec- uh, forest, uh, secret forest, stranger, stranger, stranger. Yeah. 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 stranger. Yeah. and you have uh, God's quiz. I mean, a lot of these, other than stranger, mm-hmm. a lot of these are um, procedural, like old. you said. Right. Yeah, quite old. But like, I, I think there's the procedural ones that get a second season. Mm-hmm. Um, that are easy to adapt. And I think a lot of times those are built around an ensemble rather than like a single yeah. main character. Or even if there is a single main character, the ensemble is really what makes it. And a lot of times it's built around like a workplace or an environment. Hospital playlist. Or a, yeah, exactly. I was yeah. thinking hospital playlist as well. Like it's easy to do another season versus if the story is more about like one person's epic journey. Sometimes like mm. even no matter how well loved that show is, there isn't really space for a second season. I think Stranger is kind of unusual because it was so focused on these two people. Um but again, it was about an institution in a lot of ways or two institutions, right? So they were able to bring mm. it back and have yeah. an interesting and season also, 2. Season 2 was a lot more ensemble, like it did focus it was. on way more characters than season 1, which season 1 never felt like it needed an extension and honestly it didn't. So mm. it that, would have been perfect within <laughs> itself. Yeah, yeah. You know what's interesting and I I've just noticed as we were speaking is that there's a difference between the shows that were um you know, they had an initial season and then they were so successful they turned into a franchise and then you have these more recent ones which were intentionally made as multi-season projects and they flopped uh, mm. or they didn't go as intended for example hospital playlist um you know didn't have a truncated uh, run like it ran for two seasons and not three right correct uh, and then you had like Asadal chronicles which was a complete disaster from season one but they're still doing a season two yeah Yeah, they're still doing a season two but they replaced the entire cast (laughs) yeah right exactly um and then you had like kingdom which was meant to have three seasons and it like ended at two right yeah i this is quite interesting actually maybe a topic for another day Mm. yeah but i i suppose um the the way they differ from traditional shows is simply that some of these are meant to have uh multiple seasons and those well the ones who are are not meant to have multiple seasons but end up having them anyway um they tend not to see much success in um later seasons and unlike for instance um dr kim um dr romantic Mm -hmm which uh, the second season was actually more successful um, than oh, the first one, it? which is why they got a third season. Now, the third uh-huh. season itself isn't, didn't like break any records, so I don't think it'll get a fourth one. <laughs> but, <What> else? <laughs> yeah, so, but the reason they sometimes get a second season is simply because even though that seasonal format isn't something the industry is very used to, they do see the benefits of profiting off a brand that's already there so occasionally they will uh, do these things also if they have contracts that like already have the actors bound to their production house for a long enough period of time and they can squeeze out one more um, you know season of something that was already successful they will do it so it's it's a mm. business decision most of the time mm. and not a creative yeah one. I mean there's yeah. a lot of times where you just don't the people just aren't available to come back because they're yeah. doing yeah. other things exactly. yeah signal 2 is never happening mm. I'm okay. (laughs) I'm not okay. (laughs) Sorry, Parma, were you in again? Was there something else? Only only that uh, the dramas that do um, intend to have like second season, for instance, Love Alarm was broken up. So that is what we are used to more, where a drama is written as a single season, but then 
arbitrarily like, chopped in half. They just chopped it in half, so therefore and you no have reason. to wait for season two. You know, that was an experimental thing that they were doing, which they they haven't stopped. Like, Glory was, uh, yeah. you know... I was going to uh, mention the in, Glory, yeah. Yeah, uh, two-season format. But at least they thought about it. They knew. Like, you could see the first eight episodes, they ended... They had an ending point. So you could see that they meant for a second season to happen. Uncanny Counter, for instance, mm. they left some threads running where you could actually expect a second season. So, Wasn't, yeah. I mean, dramas do that. All dramas more or less do that. They make it seem like there's... This is like a, a way of ending dramas is that sort of the final, aha, uh-huh, you know? Yeah. It doesn't mean there's going to be a second season. And this is a thing that I um, was really annoyed about in Squid Game, actually, which is that the drama ended there. That mm. little bit at the end wasn't um, bait for a second season. Mm. But like the international audience misunderstood this. They didn't understand this is how dramas end. They were like, of course, there's a second the season. The international audience has been trained by Marvel movies to always expect another <laughs> But American TV in general, um, right? Like that's, that's how true. seasons end. Yeah, yeah. They, they are baiting for a second season. Yeah, that's also true. Um, and yeah, this is why. It but I agree with you. Could, An ambiguous yeah. or slightly open ending doesn't necessarily yeah. mean there's more that needs to come. Sometimes you can yeah. just use your imagination. That's a more enjoyable that's the point. experience. Like, the imagination is the point. Yeah. yeah. Like it leaves you, you go away thinking about it for like weeks. And that's the point. But aside from that, there really isn't much difference between like seasonal dramas and normal dramas. Like the first season will always seem like a normal, you know, single season K-drama. It's... The the structuring of multi-season dramas hasn't really infiltrated K-dramas to the core as yet. So they don't create... I don't create, want it to. I don't want it yeah. to either. But that's why I'm saying that the difference isn't there yet is, is because they are kind of grandfathering in the seasonal format instead of it already being there from the foundation. It's not like they're thinking, oh, 16 episodes each three seasons that what that's what we are going mm. for no they were never going for that to begin with but if the first season succeeds then yes we will try to see if the contracts work out if we can get everyone to come back in right for but then the, again the second season is kind of treated as a complete thing you're not thinking of it like uh, you know like an endless kind of how as far as we can go kind of mentality yeah. which was a lot of thankfully times. that has not as yeah. yet oh another one that uh is also ensemble and like very like concept based is taxi driver you're bringing up uncanny counter reminded me too because like uncanny counter is also an ensemble and it's like high concept Mm. yeah and it's got this replicable formula like you can apply the same beats to the second season with a different story well it's also like Mm. like uncanny counter kind of has like the monster of the week thing and taxi driver has like the case of the week right I'm, i'm assuming even if you have like an overarching big bad so yeah true The next question is from Lorna Sheridan. They ask, have you listened to the Burning Sun podcast and has it changed your feelings about Korean dramas? All right. So the Burning Sun incident was something that we had extensively uh, covered on this podcast while it was happening. Um, We will link to some of our episodes for listeners who have not gone uh, a couple of years back in our archives uh, because it was really interesting. Um, Mm. And... I suppose what you're actually asking is knowing that incidents like that um, happen in the Korean entertainment industry, how do we feel about K-dramas in general? Mm. 
Yeah, you know, this has been, it's actually a good time to ask this question because until this year, I haven't been interested in K-pop at all. But also this year, I've learned more about K-pop, like, that I've ever, ever known. <laughs> and I know way too much now. And I think, like, that, like, the abuses that happen in the industry, they're not unique to, K like, the Korean entertainment industry. These happen in any entertainment in industry in any country. But, like, you know, K ain't being our focus. There have always been these cases of, particular abuses that happen in K-dramas, like we mentioned earlier, um, Anissa mentioned earlier about the, you know, working conditions on set of certain dramas um, that came more into the public eye, I think, in 2016. I think Barma mentioned that, actually. Oh, was it Barma? Pardon me. Um, but the thing with the drama stuff is that it's not that it's not there, but there's... Um, I think there's less direct access to it as an audience, whereas in K-pop, you have a sort of a direct line to the the actual mechanics of the industry, which in drama, you're, you're experiencing the drama and not going past the drama wall and looking at, at the you know, the functioning, how the industry functions behind the scenes. Like, you're not as exposed to it in drama as you are in K-pop. Um, and I have to say, this is, it's reminded me a lot of why I never got in, why I never wanted to be into K-pop, because it's very difficult to uh, reconcile what you believe about how people should be treated and, you know, labor rights and exploitation and all of those things. Um, when you're constantly confronted with all of the, these troubling aspects of what, for example, idols experience. Mm. Um, and while it hasn't necessarily changed my view, I do feel that you see a lot more when you're looking at K-pop that you can sort of be masked from seeing in K-drama. But also, I think because K-pop is, the the focus is on individuals, on idols, there's, a, like, the exploitation is more direct as well. And the way that people interact with, you know, the fact that a human being is a product, whereas in K-drama, the drama is the product. And that, you know, it creates these tensions that you do have to think about what you point. want to consume. Mm. And I don't want to consume. There's so much I don't want to consume. And maybe, like, the most that I can do is choose not to consume it. Um, so, yeah, I think that there is a different tension in K-drama and there's a d different tension in K-pop. Yeah. I also just want to ultimately they're the same industry. Yeah. I also just want to say, like, I, I think from the beginning, we've been very um, careful to separate. I, I feel I mean, I think we've done our best on this podcast to treat the Korean entertainment industry as an entertainment industry and to treat K Korean dramas as a storytelling medium and a format that we really enjoy, but not as this like thing without problems yeah it's some yeah. sort of aspirational unicorn of of tv that like could never exist anywhere else and is so different from i mean like 
Korean dramas are specific to South Korea. They have, um, you know, like they're very special because of a lot of different factors about. Uh, but I don't think we should ever like fetishize or um, essentialize or, you know, yeah. like we really I, I think we've always tried to be really careful not to fall into that. And we're very conscious of that as um, people who are not Korean, um, but also people who have experienced being racialized and essentialized in our own lives um, in various mm -hmm. ways. Um, and who also like bring our own thoughts about, you know, the entertainment industries that we've grown up with and been exposed to and learned about during our lives in our own countries. Um, but I also want to point out that the Burning Sun incident, particularly, and all of the um, stuff that came out later, you know, so um, if you haven't listened to this podcast, it's one that came out in June of, I think, the summer of 2023. And it's uh, like this, this, this BBC journalist basically interviews a lot of the um, some of the journalists that first reported on, you know, like the Jung, Jung Jun Young story uh, where he like secretly filmed his girlfriend and she, I mean, it was an ongoing saga with them. Then there were all of these other um, K-pop artists and musicians and actors who were like sharing videos of, um, you know, like really, you know, both consensual and non-consensual acts that they had done with women. I mean, just really horrible stuff. And the whole, there was the whole Sungri thing with like the club, the Burning Sun Club, which is where the name of the scandal came from. Like you can look into it. There's a lot. I, I don't want to like go into that rabbit hole, but essentially this is a story about men doing horrible things to women. Um, and I don't think that that's, maybe it expresses itself in a particular way in South Korea but it's a global problem. And I don't think it's yeah. limited to an entertainment industry. And I don't even know whether maybe these people's celebrity and the, the way that fans idolized them might have like insulated them from some criticism in some ways. Um, but I don't think that it's like, you know, limited to this kind of industry so I don't think that it's really mm -hmm. something that you can say oh like look at this terrible thing that happened like I guess we just have to write off this whole country or this whole entertainment <laughs> industry like mm -hmm. every as, as Saya said like every entertainment industry has these problems and every society has these problems and like mm -hmm. as women living in our societies like these are not problems that we're unfamiliar with you know like we know yeah. this stuff happens um and we also try to be responsible fans ourselves yeah. because we see uh, situations like, for instance, fans of Sungri um, and some of the other men involved in that scandal and other scandals that were happening and get, were getting exposed around the same time who are um, very much um, still defending uh, them, still unwilling to believe um, reports about them, what has come out, uh, just... <sighs> That will always exist. It does seem to be exacerbated in um, K-pop um, to a certain extent. And uh, all three of us blame uh, the, the, the businesses who run the industry and not the fans first because they created that. Uh, they profited from creating a fandom like that. Mm -hmm. um, and the side effects of it is this toxicity. Um, but the way we try to uh, participate in the fandom is by always being cognizant of our own biases, our prejudices, the, the ways in which we uh, tend to forgive certain wrongs because we have affection for certain artists. 
we try to analyze that. And when one of us can't, <laughs> the others <laughs> sort of help um, gently, help um, um, us sort of refocus um, and, and like think things through from other perspective. So basically, be responsible fans is what we are trying to say. And yeah. um, don't hate on people, but like... Yeah, I, I think a lot mm -hmm. of this is also just um, reminding yourself to have a nuanced perspective on the media that you consume and not having like black and white judgments about it, but trying to think about mm -hmm. like, what is this? What is this? And I mean, specifically thinking about Korean dramas, like what is this story trying to say? Who made it? Um, how was it made? Like if that's something that interests you, like obviously it interests us because we thought we think about that and we talk about that a lot. Um, you know, like human beings are complex. The world is co complex. Very few things in this life are ever completely black and white. Um, and I will say also, I listened to one episode of that BBC um, podcast about Burning Sun, and I found it kind of uh, sensationalized and also like very much coming from an outsider perspective who's treating this as like a new thing that no one has heard about, which like five years after it happened, uh, many of us who have been <laughs> in this fandom space for a long time have like l litigated uh, this to death, right? Already, like right. these discussions have been Not happening in fandom spaces <laughs> for a long time. Um, and I also had some issues with, and I know um, Forma also agrees with me, like, I think you listened to some of it too, right, Forma? Like, yeah. They they made a choice to do all of the interviews in Korean, but then instead of having those voices in the podcast, they had actors say English versions of everything that they said. Accented so they, English. And they used accented English, and some of them didn't even yeah. have Korean accents. And also, like, why why do that? Like, why remove the original voice? Like, I have... I think that, like, goes against journalistic standards, personally. Like, I have ethical questions about that. So, anyway, take that, you know, with a grain of salt. I just wanted to say that since, um, you know, Lorna Jordan, you did bring up that podcast and, and you wanted to, you asked us what we thought. So, that's our take, I think. Does anyone have anything to add? I would just say, around that time, there was a lot of media that had come out covering everything that was happening very responsibly. And, um... All I would say is that if this is the first time you're hearing about that, read up about it, um, watch YouTube videos. <laughs> there are quite a few. There are some of um, some really interesting interviews um, are on YouTube right now about um, what was happening around that time. But also just stay aware of um, uh, news from um, K-drama and K-pop industry. Like, don't just um, isolate yourself um, and, and watch the... Uh, media that comes out of there, but also try and stay a little aware of um, the context of that media, mm. what the soup it's boiling in. And that's about it. That's, that's, that's my take. Yeah. Our last question is from Christy Suit uh, 22 who asks, for each of you, who is your favorite actor or actress that you'll watch whatever they're in? Wow, Chris, so ah! you're really asking us to make a hard choice here. <laughs> this is really an unfair question. Uh, did we get this one? Oh, I, I don't Didn't know. we decide that we would try to guess each other's? Should we try to guess each other's? Oh, yeah, let's try to guess. Yes. Um, well, I've got a whole list for Boroma. I, I, know, I know what you want. <laughs> you're, uh, okay. <laughs> okay, in that in that case, uh, let me guess for uh, the two of you first. Um, 
Oh my God, why did I just say that? I have I don't actually have answers in my head. <laughs> I have a couple of guesses for Saya. Uh, Yu yes, Sung Ho, Yu Sung Ho and Park Hyung Sik. Perhaps. Yes, yes, but of. also, like, I don't think there's anybody these days that I will watch uncritically. Like, whatever they've done, I'm watching it. I will mm. check out the drama premise first. And this is, I'm sorry, Yu Sung Ho, you shouldn't have done that rubbish drama that you just did. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, you're right about Park Young-shik. I will watch anything. Until he drops a bad drama that I hate, I will check it out no matter what. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, that's very few. Like, Lee Jung-ki used to be the actor. BDS Jin. That's my guess. act. <laughs> he won't. Maybe someday. Well, he you are right that I will watch anything that he does. That is correct. And I have been working my way through the Jin archives. <laughs> <sighs> Is there anybody quite so rewarding to watch? The correct yeah. answer to that is no. No, of course not. <laughs> I mean, how many oh, times have we watched yeah. the making of Astronaut? Okay, but back to K-dramas. <laughs> back to K-dramas. <laughs> um, yeah, Yuzuru would have been my uh, top choice for you, but I would actually say Lee Jung-suk. Um, because he's oh, my boy. Oh, you're right. <laughs> I forgot about him your boy. I also forgot about Yi Jung-suk. Yeah, that's a good yeah, one. No, you're right, 100%. He, not only is he always good, but his drama choices generally are pretty solid. Um, and like, I've I've got a list of actors who've like lost my trust, like Lee Jung-gi mm. being mm. one of them. Mm. I used to watch anything he was in. And like, at a point, I stopped. And I'm not going to watch I have a f- Chronicles Part 2. I have a few that like... <laughs> I would, I will definitely at least watch like two or three episodes. I, I don't think I can like fully, at this point in my drama <laughs> journey, I don't think I can like fully watch a whole drama that I hate for anybody, but like there are a few. And, and, until Touch Your Behind for Anissa and ah. said Imingi. <laughs> <laughs> until that shit. She started it. She I mean, started it. I, that's true, I definitely that's wouldn't have even started it with that premise if it wasn't for him. <laughs> so I think he still counts. Um, okay. I have a few more. Are you guys Shin Hyesun as well them? would be yours? Yeah. Shin Hyesun? Shin Hyesun, yeah. definitely. Also, 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 uh, Im Shin Sikyung. Shin Sikyung and also Im Shin Shin Sikyung, Shin Sikyung actually, maybe not so I much. I wouldn't say that for Anissa. Yeah. yeah. But Im Shiwan, for sure, he's on my list. Yeah. He was the first person <laughs> to come to mind, actually. And like, Kung Yu? Kung maybe? Yu. You know, he hasn't done a lot of dramas recently, so I feel That's like I'm true. not as much of like a hardcore Kong Yu fangirl as I used to be. There is somebody else that I'm like surprised. But you so, both of you, so. for both of you, Juno. Sorry. <laughs> Juno. Yeah, actually, now, now, Juno, yes. Mm. Now, like post uh, the Red Sleeve, Juno. You know, yes. I didn't actually even start King the Land, so I guess Juno isn't for me, like in that <laughs> oh, sense. Okay. Like, I really love him, but like the drama has to be good. Chosungu? Chosungu is definitely no. on the list for me. Not for me. Lee jun Yeah. No, this is Anissa's list. I haven't ah, got to your list yet, Pete. Oh. Yours is a whole long list. Um, <laughs> should I just tell you one of them that I'm surprised you haven't guessed yet? Okay. Kim Ji-suk. Oh, yeah. I will, at least, trying to remember. I will at least start. Um, uh, yes, the thing I is, I know started, this. I even started yeah. monthly magazine home for him, knowing that he was going to yeah. play an evil yeah. landlord and she was going to be at his mercy. <laughs> oh, my God. I should have guessed that one. Yeah. No, Top absolutely. Star Ubeck, I definitely man. knew that one. Top Star Ubeck will always have my whole heart. That is such a good Okay. Show. Can I do Borman's Yes, okay. let's do Borman now. Like, I've got this. Um, Lee Jae-yuk. Park So-jun. So-in-guk. Uh, Han Hyo-ju. 
Kim Goat. Puck you young Puck Bogum. That's my list for you. <laughs> tech. Tech for both of you. Song Joongi, definitely for Boroma. Yojingu maybe once was, but isn't anymore. Song Joongi for me too. Oh, yeah. I mean, post Vincenzo Song Joongi, I think for all of us. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I can't say was no I to right? any of them. <laughs> <laughs> also, also, um, holy shit, what's her name? <laughs> so, 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 hold on. Oi! Oi! Pang Min Young? No, Pang Min Young? No, no, no. no? Um, um, oh, Park Shin I said Kim, pa- Kim Goon. Yes. No, no, no. no. Oh, Pagan Bin? Oh, no. You know her. I love her. Short head. Uh, because it's my first life. Oh. Ina Young? Oh, because. No, oh, um, oh, yeah, yes. Alchemy of Souls. What's oh her name? Oh, my God. What's her name? Jung Summit. Jung Summit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this inadvertently became a quiz of like, can you remember actor names? Which, like, I can no longer remember I can't any anymore. Of them. Yeah. I used brain. to have this encyclopedic recall of them, and I do. I have not. to say, Kim Goon is also on my list. I love her. Okay. Kim yeah. Goon, yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Honestly, I yeah. started Little Women for uh, Kim Goon. I-, I went and watched all the movies she's done. It's, oh my God, how did I forget? Like, um, hello, did nobody guess Sh- Shin Mina <laughs> for me? Oh, oh Shin Mina. Mina. I haven't seen her around She hasn't so been long. in a drama for a while. Yeah. I feel like, oh, she did our blues. Yeah. yeah. She did our blues. Yeah. yeah. That was more of an ensemble though. So she didn't stick in my mind as like true, one of the true, main true. But also Hometown yeah. Chasa Chasa. Listen, for me, that's a Shin Mina drama. I mean, uh, Kim, uh, Kim Sono is good, but Shin Mina. <laughs> yeah. She's great. Yeah, yeah. Shin Mina no, is No, she's definitely one of them. You turn up for. Yeah. Yeah. And Kim Hae-su, like you said it and I didn't get a chance to respond. But yeah, Kim Hae-su is also Absolutely. one of those giants. Yeah, one hundred percent. Okay, I yeah. I don't think I uh, man I I can't believe I couldn't guess more of you guys. I think that's primarily because I don't remember actor names. Uh, I, I think also oh, like also I mean I yeah the crash yeah. landing on you couple Hyunbin and um, oh yeah that's true. Well, oh my god, um, why can't I remember name? her name? Right Ye now? Yeji Son Yeji Son no, Son Yeji no, Oh my god, yeah, Son Yeji yeah. <laughs> But that said, I didn't even try to watch 39. That's true. Um, I also didn't try to watch that. Yeah. The, ca- the cancer drama vibes were just too much for me. But I yeah. will definitely check out anything that Hyunbin makes, even if it's just for one episode. From now. Yeah. yeah. He yeah, is yeah. he is one of my early, early K-drama loves from like yeah. 2009. Oh, did, did, okay. Also, also, I, and this, and she tops everything. You and I. Just mm. everything. Oh, of course. Yes. Of course, you and I. I was like thinking there's somebody yeah. that we're forgetting. It was definitely yeah. everyone yeah. is on the list and, and you and I is on another list. I'll jump to you and I just watch everything she does. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple more, which the thing is I haven't been watching their recent dramas, but I'm always interested to see what they're doing. Um Chesubin, who mm, I love. Chesubin. Um and the oh god, Solomon's Perjury Boy, whose name I can't remember right now. Um Jang Dong Yoon who, again, I haven't watched his last two or three dramas, but, like, he's so good, I will always look at what he's doing. Yeah. That's <laughs> okay. Cool. I think we have a... Oh, <laughs> another one for me is um, Crash Course in Romance, male lead. What's his name? Jung kyung Jung kyung Jung kyung yeah. yeah. Actually, the thing is, he does these dramas that I won't watch, like those scary horror ones that Boromo was telling me about yeah. before we started recording. I, I mean, I'm that's true. Going that's to... like a genre thing, but like I watched yeah. a very significant portion of the one of the drama where he like 
gets a heart transplant and then oh falls God. in love with the lady that it was like the fiance oh, of the yeah. guy whose heart he took. I watched like 14 episodes for that solely well, for Jung Kyung Ho. I mean, that was I bad drama. I How did they fucking exist? Uh, falling for Innocence? Was it Falling yeah, for Falling innocence? for Innocence. Yeah. I think it's called Heartbeat as well. It is. Like, it's oh my God. Yeah. That, that was insane. not a good show. I totally, but he was good in it. He was magnetic. I didn't care. Kang Hanel is also an actor who you always need to see what he's doing next. Mm. But I haven't watched his last six dramas or something. I, I just, I don't have drama steam. There are so many dramas now. <laughs> yeah. It's not like when I'm we first likely. started watching dramas and there was like three dramas airing yeah. in any eight week yeah. period. And it was yeah. like yeah. easy to see all of them. Yeah. I'm more likely to watch based on premise or writer than I am based on actor at this point. Yeah. Writer like, is probably the, the top. Thing. Yeah. Writer yeah, director, not so much because like directors no. can sometimes yeah. do wildly different projects. And if you go by directors, <laughs> yeah. you're going to be like, oh, this is my favorite thing. And then this is my least favorite thing. Why did you do yeah. this to me? I also <laughs> think tricky. like a good director can very rarely save a badly written drama. That's that's very mm-hmm. true. Doesn't matter how beautifully shot and, and like beautifully directed yeah. it is. True. Follow the writers, guys. That's yeah, what yeah, exactly. Find your favorite writers <laughs> and hold on to them. <laughs> Yeah, but still, Christy, this was a really fun question. Thanks yeah. for asking it. Or clearly, yeah. we have a lot of excitement around this. <laughs> this topic. could be like a whole episode. Yeah. Um, okay, so that was our sixth anniversary mailbag extravaganza. Thank you for sending in your questions and your emails and your comments. This oh, is one I of the also- only situations where, like, when you say I don't have a question, have a comment, you won't get like booed off the stage. We actually <laughs> want it. <laughs> Also, thank you for everyone yeah. who uh, thank you to everyone who sent us um, congratulations on our sixth anniversary. Um, that, it was it was really nice of you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it can't be said enough how much we love when someone talks to us. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's it's like very like, if we were doing this solo, it would, we would be spe- mm-hmm. it would be so lonely. Because it's it's uh, so hard. Like you guys write into us, yes, but it's not like on a like daily basis. Like it's not frequent, mm-hmm. guys. Is what I'm saying. If we were running yeah. a YouTube channel, and you know there would be comments under every video, that'd be like a direct interaction, yeah. somewhat. But podcasting is is somewhat isolated, and Very the more you interact with us, the more we we are reminded that you know. It's if you knew how excited we got every time we got a new review. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. We pass it around the group chat, we polish it, we like, you know, look at our reflections in it and we're like, ah. <laughs> rub it clean with the sleeve of your jumper. Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Well, it's all about in the end, it's all about the conversations that we can have with each other and the conversations that we can have with you. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's what and keeps the, us going. And that it it's also it is it becomes an ongoing relationship and it goes back to what we were saying earlier about it being a community like you guys are a community and any evidence of that is always deeply deeply appreciated yeah bigger than our three-person group chat (laughs) (laughs) so where can people find us they can find us on twitter at dramas overflow and you can find me at not now saya and you can find me at Anisa Khalifa underscore. And you can find me, Parma, at The Drama Notes. You can find us on Instagram at dramasoverflowers underscore and email us at dramasoverflowers at gmail.com. Our website is dramasoverflowers.net. You can find essays and reviews and things there. And you can sign up for our newsletter. The link is in the description. Or you can go straight to dramasoverflowers.net. 
substack.com and sign up. Yes. Oh, and, and is, yeah. is anyone on Blue Sky? Is Blue Sky a thing with our listeners? We're on Blue Sky, but I don't think anyone else is on there. You're so on I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> maybe that's what you should add in here then. So yeah. So if you use Blue Sky, let us know and we will start adding that to our <laughs> sign off. Okay. And thanks for staying for this very long episode. And for being with us for six years, guys, especially, especially those of you who have been with us from day one. We know who you are, or at least the ones who've written to us and who support us on Patreon. We know who you are and we love you and we appreciate all of you. Yeah, all of you. Mm-hmm. Whether you've said hello or not. <laughs> whether, whether you have um, said hello, whether you have um, you know supported us uh, for a time, whether you've listened to us for a time and can no longer find time to listen to us anymore, or maybe you don't you know find your joy in K dramas as much anymore. But if you've been with us for any amount of time, thank you so mm. much. Yeah, and whether and you've you know been a lurker this whole time, we support <laughs> lurkers too. Yeah, yes. I'm a lurker too, you know. Yeah, <laughs> she has, it has so many unknown an usernames. You never know which one, Saya. <laughs> um, and I want to thank both of you for six years because um, thanks for being my friend. And inviting me to do this podcast with you, I'm, I just, I, I know, like, it's changed my life beyond imagining. So I, I really love you guys and I really appreciate you too. So finger hearts. Uh, she, she always does this thing. Like, she's like, yeah, yeah, stop just it. Stab the heart of, uh, yeah, but I love now. you guys too. Bye. Uh, bye. Sorry, sorry. I have these two emotional turtles with me. I always have to make them cry every time. And then they hate me for it. Okay, well. I'm going now. Good night. Bye. I've chased chased them off. All right. Bye, y'all. I love you too. Bye.